There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, because it was weak through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to this, the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mind that is set on the flesh is death. And the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh if the Spirit of God dwells in you. If Christ is in you, though your bodies are dead because of sin. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Therefore, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, You will die. But if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba. Father, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if you suffer with him, that you may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the whole creation would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until now in the pains of childbirth. And not only the creation, but we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we groan inwardly waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope, 
we were saved. But who hopes for what he sees? But if you hope for what you do not see, you wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for the saints, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the one who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But we do know that everything works together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. His Christ Jesus who died, indeed who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, the great eight. Father, Father, Abba, come, come, speak, create life. Now, speak. Create faith. Faith comes by hearing. They have heard. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, tomorrow morning, I will make the Big picture case, why that's the greatest chapter in the Bible. Doesn't need much argument.
But in these three sessions, we're going to get down detailed and dirty. I believe in both. I love to soar. I love to sing. I could sing with you all day about these things. You won't sing long and you won't sing deep if you don't get down into the details. Lots of people don't like to do detail work. They just want the fruit. And that's okay, I suppose. They'll just never be teachers and they won't be very effective small group leaders. Life is attention. Attention between the sweet enjoyments of the fruits of study and the hard, mind-bending, back-breaking, maddening work of thinking. So my advice to you right now is that you do two things as you sit there. You don't need to preserve any of this. It will all be available one way or the other. So don't think, I've got to preserve this. No. You should do two things. You should think and you should pray. And I base that on 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, where Paul says to Timothy, Think over what I say. For, ground clause, the Holy Spirit will grant you understanding in everything. Don't be among the number who say, Oh, if the Holy Spirit grants understanding, thinking will just get in the way. That's denying the Word of God. And don't be among the number who say, Oh, if we're called upon to think, then it's a purely human activity by which we get meaning out of the Bible. That's denying the Word of God. Because the Bible says, think over what I say with your brain that I gave you for thinking. Because in and through thinking about my word, the Holy Spirit gives understanding. We're charismatics and we're intellectuals. Because the Bible says to be. We love the Holy Spirit. He's the main per person in Romans 8. He's everywhere and dense. And so we need him now as we go. So that's my counsel. Be, be praying. Grant me understanding. Grant me understanding. And be thinking with me at what we what we see. So what we're going to do is uh, put the text up here. And I've got a little rubber tip pen here. I've got an iPad here. This is not the technology we use on Look at the Book. This is primitive. <laughs> Sorry, Apple. It's a software issue. Um, and the reason I say it's primitive is because I can't have a cursor, like you can't see me do this, and, and uh, you can't, uh, I can't write very well because it's so smushy. Um, so now that I've apologized 
for the technology, I'm going to love it. You may wonder, why are you looking there at 722? This is a, this is a conference on Romans 8. And um, Romans 8 starts right there. And the reason I included those prior verses is because of that word right there. Therefore, whenever you see that word, you need to know what went before because this is following, this is growing out of it in some way. There's another reason. There is therefore now no condemnation. I'm reading at verse 1 there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's another reason why I included these preceding verses. Because that term, law of sin, has been used twice in those preceding verses. And we won't know what this is talking about if we don't pick that up. So let's go back to 722 and start reading. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. There's law of God and inner being. But I see in my members, not his inner being, but his arms and legs and sexual organs and tongue. I see in my members another law. So now you got a law of God and you've got another law. And they are waging war against each other. So the law, this other law that's taken root in his body is against the law of my mind, which I think is the same as that law right there. And making me captive to the law of sin. That's why I included these verses. So there's the first use of the term law of sin. And I think law of sin is this other law right there. And it dwells in my members, not in my inner being, Wretched man that I am. Why? Because, because there's this war in me. I don't like it. I feel wretched a lot of times. And they're waging war in me. The law of sin and the law of God. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a deliverer, Jesus, and God through him has delivered me and how you finish that sentence makes a difference how you understand all of seven and all of eight. 
Has he delivered him from the war or from the triumph of the other law? Keep reading. Striking. So, I myself, I think that's parallel with this inner being, I myself serve the law of God. So now we got law of God up there in the first line. We got law of my mind in the second line. We got law of God again here in that line. So three times orange law of God. And I am serving this law of God with my mind, with my self, and with my inner being. Really deep, authentic service. Not in his members, which would be superficial. But with my flesh, these members, and I know the word flesh, and you do too, is bigger than body in Paul, but in this text, it's not less. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There it is again. So I've got law of sin twice. We've got the other law, the law of God, three times. And the one is being served in his inner being. First line. It's being served with his mind. Second line. Being served with his mind. There near the bottom. And with I myself, myself, I am serving the law of God. So what is the law of sin? Can we, can we draw the answer? So we, when we get here at the bottom, we'll, we'll know what we're talking about. I think the word law here in the term law of sin uh, is to be defined by authority or force or power or principle. And over against it, down here in verse 2, is the law of the spirit of life. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now here's a huge question. Because I said, has he been set free? Is he saying, thanks be to God that the warfare is over? Or thanks be to God that I am a victor who still wars but will most surely win. Now, a lot of people say, there's two big camps on Romans 7, right? One camp, the old-fashioned camp that I'm in, 
though old and new don't mean anything as far as truth go, says that what Paul is describing in those verses in chapter 7 is himself as a believer. That's my view too. I'll give you three reasons why in a minute. The other view is that that's not Paul the believer. That's Paul the pre-believer or Paul is representative of Israel or some other way. And here's the main argument. Verse 2 at the bottom. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin. Verse 7 speaks, verse 25, halfway through the verse, so then I myself serve the law of sin. Can't have it both ways, they say. Right? If verse 25 says, I, pick a different color, see if this helps. I serve the law of sin. And verse 8 says, no, I don't. I'm set free from the law of sin. Then we can't have Paul the Christian talking one way in verse 2 of chapter 8 and Paul the Christian talking that way in chapter 7, verse 25. That's the main argument. Chapter 8 introduces a triumphant Paul and chapter 7 treats a pre-Christian defeated Paul. I think that's dead wrong. For these reasons, just give you a few. I've got about eight, but I'll give you three. Number one, and, and there are really, really godly, good, wise, loving, Calvinistic people who disagree with me on this. Okay? So this is not a you can't fellowship with me if you disagree issue. I'm running out of colors here. I don't think a pre-Christian Paul could ever say this and mean it. I delight, I'm in the top line there, I delight in the law of God. Not only do I delight, I delight in my inner being. Um, if I can find slide 10, this is really tricky. Bang. Oops, that's not it. That's not it. All right, I wrote down the wrong number. Never mind. In verses 5 to 8, it says, The mind of the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is not Paul in the flesh here. This is Paul from his inner being, delighting in the law of God. Paul is at pains to distinguish how he relates to the other law, sin, and the law of God. And the way he develops it is that the other law is taking my members captive and making me an instrument of unrighteousness. Does that language sound familiar? What chapter is that from? Well, we switched to a small class. <laughs> chapter 6. In chapter 6, you have been buried with him in baptism. You have been raised with him. You are no longer under the law. You are under grace. 
And you would think, okay, battle over? Yes, set free from the law of sin. And what does it say? Do not hand your members over to sin as instruments of righteousness. Why? Because it happens. It happens. Sin takes up your hands and you smack somebody. Sin takes your eyes and you roll your eyes at somebody. Sin takes your sexual being and makes you look at pornography. Sin does that to born-again people. Because Paul said so, not some theology. And one of the places he says it is, is right here. So that's my first reason. Um, delights. The other, first one was this word I, just right there, second word in the text. He uses I all through here. And just so the natural meaning all through these verses is I, 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 and he's talking about himself. Here's the third reason. I think really powerful reason. Look at verse 25. Can you see it through the haze? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Stop. If that were the triumph leading to a post-warfare, freedom from law of sin existence. That's where the chapter would end, isn't it? Why in the world would he give a summary statement at the end of the statement of triumph? Thanks be to God, it's over. The warfare is over. Thanks be to God, I'm delivered. This next sentence is crazy if that's what he's saying because the next sentence says so because of the victory because of the victory I with my mind myself love delight in and serve God's holy truth but with my old man my fallen Nature, my indwelling sin, my remaining corruption, I am from time to time made the servant of the law of sin. That's the conclusion of the chapter. So, when you get to verse 2 of chapter 8, what does it mean? It says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Does that have any meaning anymore after Piper just concludes that the warfare is not over? It does have meaning. A meaning that you can get from chapter 6. A meaning that I think is implicit here. I can, I can put at least four meaningful words on the phrase set you free. Every believer in this room is free from the law of sin. It says so right there. If you are in Christ Jesus, see that crucial phrase there? If you are in Christ Jesus, you have been set free. This victory back in chapter 25, thanks be to God, thanks be to God, somebody has delivered me. That has meaning. 
And the first meaning I would use is decisively. You have been decisively set free. Meaning the battle has been fought at the cross, which we'll see shortly, and it is a victory so that you are decisively freed from sin. Second meaning I would put on it is finally. You have been finally set free. It is sure to happen. Those who are justified will be glorified. It is final. You have been set free. It will not destroy you. That's the second meaning. Third meaning I'd put it on it is progressively. I fight, I win, I lose. I win and win, I lose. I win and win and win, I lose. And little by little, the warfare is waged all your life against the indwelling sin, the remaining corruption, the old man that you must reckon dead and put to death if you do not kill the deeds of the body you will die verse 13 this warfare is mortal and the fourth word I would use to define the meaning of set you free here is through exhortation in other words, this is not mechanical. He died for me. The Spirit has been given to me. I am free. Mechanics. It doesn't work that way. Paul uses exhortation to bring about the freedom. He has set you free. Now be free. Be what you are. So, that's the reason I included 7.22 with the first two verses. Let's see. Ah, a clean. Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What we're going to look at next is this term right here, in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Are you in Christ Jesus? Do you, could you even say what that means? Is that your experience? I am in, in Christ Jesus. Because you want to be. Why? Because these two effects are massively important. Do you see the two effects? Could you restate right now, on the basis of verses 1 and 2, what are the two effects in this text from being in Christ Jesus? First one is right here. No condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so this one would be legal, right? I'm in a court... I didn't get condemned. I get to go free. Why? Because I'm in Christ Jesus. What's the other one? What's the other effect of being in Christ Jesus? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin in Christ Jesus. That's not legal. That's power. That's transformation. 
this big argument among scholars. Like, is it legal, you know, is it forensic, or is it transformative? Yes, of course it is. It says so, right there. There's a relationship between those two. So if you are in Christ Jesus, your union with Christ Jesus produces first a verdict, not guilty. And have anything to do with your transformation on the causal side. It does on the other side. We'll get to that. It's right there. It's right there. But on the causal side, your transformation doesn't cause your verdict. In Christ causes your verdict. But once you are in Christ, you're not just in a legal relationship with Christ. You're in a vital relationship with Christ by which the spirit of life is mightily at work getting you up in the morning and sticking your nose in the Bible and a thousand other things to get his fruit produced as you are freed from the law of sin. That's because you are in Christ Jesus. Big question, how do you get in? Where would you go in the Bible to answer, okay, I want in. I want in. How do you get in? So I'm going to linger on this for a minute. This is huge because I want you in. I really want you in. How do you get in? Let's look at a few texts. Start here. 1 Corinthians one thirty. Because of him. This is a G-O-D. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. How did you get in? He put you in. Literal Greek, from him are you in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Oh, the untold and eternal blessings of being in Christ Jesus. How do you get in? God puts you in. You don't climb in. You don't jump in. You don't scramble in. God puts you in. Next text to look at. Lots of people relate it to baptism. Sacramental traditions tend to, some of them in a kind of okay way, and I think the Roman Catholic way is a totally not okay way. That baptism is the instrument by which you are united to Christ and thus born of God. Where does that come from? It comes from right here. What does this say? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's a lot of union and into language in relation to baptism. And the big question is, okay, is he saying that the water going over the body or swallowing up the body through a duly ordained priest, pastor, effects the union? Or is he saying 
Baptism as you're buried. Buried with him in baptism. And raised with him out of baptism. Is that an emblem and a drama and an acting out of something that's happening profoundly deeper and spiritually? Is that what's happening? So are you a Baptist or are you which doesn't make any difference at all what you call yourself. Colossians 2.12 gives an answer, I believe, to that question. You have been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith. That's my answer to the question. Does the water do it? Or does faith do it? And I think that's a statement that baptism is an emblem of a burial and a resurrection which is a burial with Christ spiritually and a resurrection with Christ spiritually through faith. In the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Or drop down to chapter 2, verse 20 of Galatians. How do, you, how do you experience that day by day? I have been crucified with Christ. When he died, I died. Really? It's spectacular. That's why there's no condemnation. When he died, I died. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in union. My union is so profound, I may speak of Christ living in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. So if you ask, what's the human counterpart to this union? It's faith. So if, if you say, what's the answer? How do you get in? There's just God puts you in. What, what, what do I experience when he puts me in? You believe. You trust him. If God puts you in and you must believe to be in, wouldn't it make sense that he puts you in by awakening your faith, which is what these texts say. Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So all of this, including your faith, gift of God. How does God put you in? He moves by the Spirit into your life and he makes you new so that you believe. And your believing is the experience of being in. Romans six seventeen. thanks be to God. Why would we thank God for this? That you who were once slaves, I was a slave. I was a slave. I couldn't get out. I had shackles on. You who once were slaves have become obedient from the heart. How'd that happen? How does a slave with shackles on suddenly become obedient from the heart? Answer, thanks be to God. God did that. That's why you thank God. You don't thank yourself. You don't thank yourself that you're obedient to the gospel. 
You thank God. It robs God of his sovereign glory if you thank yourself that you're a believer. So how do you get in to Christ? You get in by God's sovereign work creating faith in Jesus. So two effects, legal effect, no condemnation. Power effect, freed in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Union with Christ is glorious. Enjoy it. What is the relationship between the two? Legally, my union with Christ establishes me as not guilty, no condemnation. Transformationally, it makes me a new person who's triumphing over the law of sin in measure, not fully. But the measure is so real, it's caused by God and a proof that you're in. What's the relationship between the legal and the transformative? And there's, there's the, oops, there's the word. No condemnation because or for, in some sense, the law of the spirit of life has freed you from sinning. Whole theologies hang on how you understand that word for. That's Protestantism and and Catholicism hang on the meaning of the word for. Here are your two options. Let me me step back and just make sure you've got something. You've got to have categories in your mind to think with. The word for is is a because word, right? It usually gives a ground or a basis, right? Everybody knows that. You could replace the word because usually. It's tricky, though, because we use the word for two kinds of grounds. Number one, a ground that is a cause. Illustration, uh, I'm hungry because or for I skipped breakfast. And so skipping breakfast is the cause of my being hungry. Or I could say, I'm hungry for my stomach is growling. Same word, connecting the two, totally different meaning. Right? For my stomach is growling. My stomach growling doesn't cause me to be hungry. Skipping breakfast causes me to be hungry. Well, why did you use the word for then? To say that your stomach is growling in relationship to your being hungry, if they don't mean the same thing, because that's the way language is, both in Greek and in English, different words are bases, are grounds in different ways. The first one is a cause, the second one is an evidence, because it was an outcome. My stomach growling is an evidence that I'm hungry, because it's an outcome of being hungry. My skipping breakfast is not an outcome of my being hungry. It's the cause of my being hungry. Question, which is meant in this word? Like, we're going to flip a coin? Let's try both. Let's paraphrase both so that you can feel feel the magnitude of what is at stake here. There is therefore now no condemnation 
Verdict, not guilty. For those who are united to Christ, in Christ Jesus. Now let's go with the the cause. Because, because, the cause of it is the Spirit has transformed you into a holy person defeating sin. And that's why you have no condemnation. That is not Christian theology. But pretty common. What would be the alternative? Paraphrase the other way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the evidence is plain. The Spirit has been poured out into your life. And you are being changed and defeating the law of sin. As an outcome of having been justified in response to which God poured the Holy Spirit into your life and began to change you. Totally different theology. And really good news. And the other way, really bad news. Really bad news. Which is it? Like, oh, I'm a Protestant. I know what it is. (laughs) That's a bad argument. (laughs) How would you answer that? You could answer it by going all over Paul and finding arguments that he doesn't mean that sanctification is the ground of justification, which is what option one would be saying. Verse two is the verse two is the sanctification verse. Sorry, this looks so puerile. I can't even spell sanctification. And verse one is the justification. verse, which is the origin and source of the other. My answer is that Paul gives us a pointer when he repeats the logic in verses 3 and 4. So go there. So this 4 here, I'm going to say is like a, a getting underneath, verse 2. And an explaining of the relationship between verses 1 and 2. Because God has done what the law, weak as it was through the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, we know we're we're dealing with the same issue, right? Verse 3 is about no condemnation. He condemned sin in the flesh of his son, your sin, his flesh, right? He didn't have any sin because he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Real flesh, not sinful. Which means that when he was condemned for sin and condemned sin, it wasn't his. Glory. Whose? Mine. But it was in the flesh... Should have been right here. My hands, my feet, my side, and it wasn't. Whose hands, feet, side was it? His. What's this called? It's called substitution. It's called penal substitution because he's condemned. This is courtroom language. Picking up on verse 1, Jesus is 
executed for sin, mine, in his flesh, not mine. I go free, he goes to hell. So verse 3 is a justification verse. It's on that level, repeating verse 1 and getting underneath it. And it's followed by, in order that, what? In order that the righteous requirement of the law, and I'm going to argue in a few minutes that that's love, might be fulfilled in us, I'm going to argue that's real life transformation, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Ah, ah. So Christ took my place and became my condemnation so that there's no condemnation for me in order that I might walk by the Spirit. The debate is over. You get it? You see it? This walk, this, this, this freedom from condemnation there, let's get a different color. This freedom from condemnation here and here is the, the backstory, the power, the enabling, the cause of something in order that I might walk according to the Spirit, which is exactly what verse 2 is talking about. The law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. But now the the logic of the relationship between verses 1 and 2 is plain because he repeats it, namely, no condemnation, verse 3, in order that you might live by the Spirit. You're not living by the Spirit to get no condemnation. You're living by the Spirit because you are freed from condemnation and He bought it fully for you, experienced it for you so that the Holy Spirit might be poured out into your life and you might not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So my answer is this four right here is evidence because that's what the connection between three and four teach. If you have the Holy Spirit in your life according to verse four, and he's there uh, fulfilling the just requirement of the law in your life, and you're not walking according to the flesh, but you're walking according to the Spirit, you have been justified. You didn't do it in order to get justified. That is about as important as it can get in this text. Think with me for a few minutes about what the law could not do. I'm erasing. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's real transformation, giving evidence that we are not condemned. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What could the law not do? 
the law. And by sending his own son, he did it. Two things the law couldn't do. It couldn't condemn sin in the flesh. Now, when I first thought of that, I thought, oh, my. The law is very good at condemning. That's all the law does for those who are in the flesh. When the mind of the flesh meets the law, you don't get law keeping, you get law breaking, and therefore you get condemnation. The law is really good at condemning. So what do you mean when you say the law weakened by the flesh couldn't condemn? Well, it it does condemn, but it doesn't condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus. The law could never provide you with your substitute without which you only go to hell. The law can only condemn you successfully. It could never render a verdict not guilty. Only Jesus can render a verdict not guilty because by sending, the Father by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. The law can't do that. It's got to be done. The priest couldn't do it. The sacrificial system couldn't do it. Only the Son of God. And notice, He is coming in the flesh This is not like God sent John Piper to Bethlehem 34 years ago. This is God sending His Son from heaven. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. This is from heaven to earth, second person of the Trinity. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells. He is the radiance of the Father, the exact imprint of His character. This is God taking flesh so that he can do what law could never do. Law can only condemn people who are in the flesh, and we are all in the flesh until verse 9 happens, which we're not there yet. This is just preparation. So that's the first answer. What couldn't the law do? What the law could not do. Second thing the law can't do is produce law-keeping. The law cannot enable you to fulfill the law, but God sent Christ so that would happen. See that? So sending the Son, here I am in verse 3 near the end, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The law couldn't do that. The law could not produce the law. The law could only condemn for disobedience to the law. There had to be a new covenant, a new covenant. And the new covenant, this is the new covenant in my blood. The blood is right here in this Condemned sin in the flesh. This is the new covenant in my blood. What is the new covenant? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Which is happening in verse 4. That's the new covenant fulfillment of the fruit of the cross. My sins are forgiven in the new covenant first. And then on the basis of my forgiven sins, the spirit in me starts to cause me to walk not by the flesh any longer, but according to the Spirit which fulfills the just requirement, the righteous requirement of 
the law. What's that? My answer comes from chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the law who, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. That's pretty sweeping. All the Old Testament commandments are summed up in one word. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So, love does no wrong to a neighbor and therefore is a fulfilling of the law. Wow. And what is love? It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So, Christ bore my bore my sin, took my condemnation in order that real power might be poured into my life as I walk according to the Spirit so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. And I'm arguing that's love. The whole law. You love people? You keep the law. And the law couldn't do that. What the law Weakened by the flesh, could not do, God did. And he did it by the blood of Jesus, releasing the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, causing you to walk in love. I was going to linger over this issue of law from chapter 7, but I'm looking at the clock, realizing we've been in four verses and the 39 of them. I knew this would happen. It's sort of planned this way. We will pick up the pace soon. Let's just draw out a few more implications of this relationship between justification and sanctification. Because that th- those are the big words. Verse 3 is the objective work of God for me level so that my sin is condemned in Jesus. And verse 4 is the subjective work of God in me, in us. See that? In us. Here's an implication of that. Um, The only sin that the Holy Spirit can defeat in your life is a forgiven sin. You see that in that text? It's in this in order that here. In order that. Christ died that your sins might be forgiven, your guilt might be removed, wrath might be removed, condemnation might be removed, acceptance and forgiveness and love would be swallowing you up in order that. Kill sin. Therefore, you can't kill any sin that's not covered. If you try to turn that around, you will live in defeat all your life. You will really struggle with assurance. And this chapter, more than any other chapter, is meant to help you not struggle 
with assurance. We all do. But Romans 8 is about security. That'll come really, really plain as we move forward. Now we're in verses 5 to 8. And our time is up. But I'm going to take just a few more minutes. Four, grounding verse four, where we fulfill the law through love by the power of the Holy Spirit. Four, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the Spirit, I should use a different color probably, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If you have a life deeply stamped by the Spirit, your mind loves the things of the Spirit. And you, if you have a mind controlled and stamped by flesh, you love the things of the flesh. The things of the flesh are anything minus God. That's my definition of flesh. Anything considered apart from submission to God through it. Keep going. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Death is at work in the flesh. It's a deadness to the things of the Spirit. Therefore, because the mind of the flesh reveals the presence of death at work, therefore the flesh sets its mind on the things of the flesh. Death is at work in me. It's going to kill me in the end, ultimately, if it doesn't get solved. And presently, there's a deadness to the things of the Spirit so that my mind is just going to the things of the flesh. Oh, how I love the things of the flesh and have little affection for the things of the Spirit. Why? Deadness is at work in me. But the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace Life is at work in me. Verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set me free from the law of sin and death. So when life is at work here, my mind is just wrapping itself around the things of the spirit. Love them. And the word of God is one of the most clear. And things that aren't of God, anything considered apart from God, powerful life is at work. Deep peace is at work. Let's keep going, wrap it up, and then we'll break. For the mind that is set on the flesh, I'm in verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So, the reason death, so this four here, is probably arguing for the first half of verse 6, right? To set the mind on the flesh is death, for the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Got, got that? 
Okay, what is my deadness? What is my death? Why is everything going to be dead for me? I'm going to go to death. I'm living in death. Answer, because you are an enemy of God. That's who you are. You don't like God. You won't submit to God. You have a backbone of steel, a forehead of brass, a stiff neck, and you want things to go my way or the highway. Get out of my life, you sovereign being. That's who we are. And that's dead. Dead to the things of God. Dead to the things of the Spirit. Dead to all beauty and all reality that flows from and reveals God. It's deep wickedness. Keep going. So here we are at four. I think that's probably one of those evidence fours here. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God as is evidenced by the fact that it will not submit to God. God says, trust me, love me, bow before me, swear allegiance to me. I'm your God. I made you. I rule the world. No. I will do it my way. I will do sexual things my way. I'll do money things my way. I'll do marriage things my way, parenting things my way. You just stop telling me what to do. I hate to be told what to do. That's who we are, every one of you. Born that way. Every little baby, give me food or I will cry your head off. (laughs) And after that, I'll bite your nipple if you don't produce. Yeah, once you'll bite my nipple. That's another issue of parenting, but that's a different conference. We're not doing conferences anymore because Piper gets in trouble too often. We're born this way, does not submit to God's law, and then it gets worse. You wonder why I went where I went last night, the need to be born again? Indeed, it's not just that we won't, we can't. We can't submit to God's law. Indeed, we can't please God. These are big can'ts here, friends. These are big can'ts. These are theology-shaping cannots. If if your view of humanity is that we have the resources within us to overcome the power of the flesh and bring ourselves to Jesus, you just got a totally different theology than in the Bible. We are dead and we cannot please God. One last comment before we take a break. I remember years ago, I think I was in my 20s, I think I was still in seminary, can't quite locate it. As I was coming into the experience of the bigness of God, my my mind was being dismantled and I was having to rebuild everything as I saw texts. I took a course on Romans 1 to 8 where everything changed. I remember when it hit me, are you saying, Paul, that God is so God-centered And life is so God-centered. And all the universe is so God-centered that no unbeliever can please you. 
in anything he does. That's right. That was one of the most paradigm-changing thoughts I've ever had. And, and, and you might be sitting there saying, what? Like philanthropy? Honesty? Staying married? Don't please God if you're an unbeliever? No, they don't. They don't. Why? Because they're not doing it out of submission to God. The philanthropy is rebellion. The parenting is rebellion. The honesty is rebellion. Why? Because God is being ignored. Other things are being treasured above God. He's being dethroned. Treason is being committed in the moment of building a hospital for the poor. Give me an example. I have four sons and a daughter. Suppose I say, you need, you need to, uh, Daddy, can I use the car tonight to go to the ball game? Sure. Would you just wash the car for me this afternoon so that it looks nice for you and then for us tomorrow morning when we, when we drive away? Would just take you 30 minutes to just wash it up? <sighs> Rosie, yeah, I don't want to wash the car. i got things to do. So, well, if you don't wash the car, don't, you're not going to get to use it tonight. <laughs> Goes to his room. This never happened. I'm making this up. <laughs> Other things like it happen. <laughs> but this, this one I'm making up. I, I, an hour later, I see him out there washing the car. <laughs> <laughs> Now, how I feel about that? Obedience! Woo! Pleased! Pleased! No, my heart's breaking. My heart's breaking. Why wouldn't you just do it? Because I ask you to. That's philanthropy. That's parenting. That's staying married. That only makes sense. I mean, those kinds of wild and radical statements. I mean, 95% of the people in Minneapolis would hear that and say, you are stupid. You are crazy to say that only people who believe in Jesus can please the creator of the universe. You're just crazy. You're cultic. Good night. That's what they'd say. And maybe some of you are saying that. But if, if you are so God-centered that verse 7 and 8 rule your life, namely that everybody's hostile to God until the Holy Spirit moves in, nobody submits to God's law while they're in the flesh and all unbelievers are in the flesh. They cannot and therefore they cannot please God because pleasing God means washing the car because you love God. God wants to be loved and enjoyed and trusted and honored by happy obedience. He loves cheerful car washers, preachers, moms, dads, lawyers, doctors, teachers, out of Cheerful dependence on my God. I do what I do. And he smiles and he's pleased. 
And if we don't believe in him, don't trust him, don't follow him, don't lean on him, nothing we do pleases him. Let me pray and we'll pick it up here. Father, I ask that you would minister to us now in this break and then bring us back. Help me to get the the pace going here such that we won't short-circuit any of these teachings. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.